0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. You'll find nearly 100 of these awesome interviews in my podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. Today's podcast features my longtime friend, Blaine H., whose path to alcoholism began with loneliness, isolation, and ultimately bitterness towards God after his beloved grandfather died when Blaine was 10. Living near his grandfather's ranch in a small East Texas town, Blaine learned about hunting, fishing, and how to act like a man. When his grandfather, whom he idolized, passed away, Blaine was left with few coping skills beyond the kind a real man, like John Wayne, would use. So by the time he started drinking, Blaine had a lot to drink away. But booze always did the trick. Drinking with increasing volume and frequency, he barely made it through high school and college, where he also smoked pot. By his early twenties, Blaine's life was rudderless as his alcoholism progressed. He eventually went through a treatment program, followed by nearly two years as a resident of Sober Living Facilities. It was there that he was exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous. But it wasn't until he was 27, when, at the additional urging of a therapist, that he surrendered. Blaine finally decided to claim sobriety with a solid commitment to do the work the program demanded. Since that day 19 years ago, Blaine has become somewhat of a Model AA member. He attends meetings regularly, and it's not uncommon for me to see him two or three times a week. He's done intensive step work with his sponsors throughout the years, passing the practical wisdom he has learned on to the men that he sponsors. Study of the Big Book, Daily Prayer, and residing in the middle of the program have helped him get through difficult times, including the severe illness of his son. He also survived maintaining a relationship with an active alcoholic, whose brutal disease was arrested on the day she herself survived a deadly DWI. Her subsequent sobriety, thanks to AA in prison, made it possible for Blaine to allow her back into his life. Like many, Blaine's tale has much to offer to those whose experience with alcoholism has been wrought with seemingly impossible challenges. As the 99th episode in my AA Recovery Interviews podcast series, it contains many similarities with other stories I've heard over the past two years, but there's also a lot of new insights to learn from Blaine's story, and my hope is that you'll benefit from them all. So, please enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews as you listen to the captivating words of my friend and AA brother, Blaine H.
1: Name's Blaine, I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Blaine. Thanks so much for doing the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me tonight. We had the opportunity to share a really good men's meeting here. The man who led it is from a halfway house that sends a number of people over here every week. Always great to have a lot of new blood in the room. Have you ever had a chance to go over to that particular halfway house? I have. What's been your experience going to some of these halfway houses?
1: Well, my experience going to that particular halfway house has been I've worked with a couple of guys there mm. um, in the past. They mm-hmm. have not stayed sober. Yeah, and I've found that sometimes it seems like there's difficulty around their schedule and my schedule, and, and to, to work with them.
0: One of the challenges too is that they they don't have their cell phones when they're in there, and I That's think there's right. only one telephone, which makes it a little difficult. The thing I like about them coming over here is they get the opportunity to sit within a regular AA meeting, and one of the best AA meetings here in Houston, as opposed to the AA meetings that they hold themselves, where AAs from the outside come in. I think being able to be in this environment is really helpful. What I've noticed over the years is exactly what you just said, though, and that is that some of these guys, they get done with that particular program or halfway house, and then we don't see them again, and I'm always concerned about that. Sometimes it's a little troubling.
1: That's right. But the fact that they come here on Sundays, I mean, it's a huge blessing and benefit
0: for yeah. us. Yeah.
1: I, mean, I hope it is for them, too. And I feel like it, it probably is. I mean, it would be great if they find something here to where they wanted to come back and, and hang out with us. And yeah. be great.
0: So now, you're, you've been sober how long? What's your sobriety date?
1: December the 8th of 2003.
0: Okay. So 18 years. December. Wow. Was that the very first time you tried to get sober?
1: It's the first time I went to AA. I, I mean, I, I say that truthfully, I believe in November of 03, I knew I needed help. I was staying with an, mm-hmm. an aunt and uncle in Denton, which is North Texas. Sure. And once again, I, you know, didn't have a place to go and, and they took me in. I was going to try to, you know, mm-hmm. get a job, get sober, you mm-hmm. know, on my feet, but the getting sober thing for me was something that I always wanted to do on my own. I didn't want help, I, you know. And so I went to—I I found a, a meeting in the yellow pages. That was back when they had yellow.
0: Pages. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: And I went to a meeting at this church
0: uh-huh.
1: in, in Denton, and I got to the parking lot, and it was either maybe, maybe there was no one there, but either whatever happened, I can—I can vaguely remember because my my thinking <laughs> and memory yeah. about all that yeah. that, that time yeah. frame is very fuzzy. But I just remember I was so scared to go in. There may have been people there, but I was so scared to go in that I just turned around.
0: So you went to the meeting, but you just didn't go to the meeting. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I got it.
1: There was just the whole fear of surrendering control. You know, there was a mental health professional that I had seen off and on for a few years. And at one point she said, you know, I think you need, and it was early on in our sessions. Uh Uh-huh. Um, She said, I think you need to go to, and I I didn't even, I wasn't even really honest with her about Mm -hmm. the extent of my drinking and using, but she could sort of spot it early on. She said, I think you need to go to treatment and go to AA. I know it's helped a lot of people. And I said, I'll do anything but that. Those people are weak. They're losers. And that was probably four years prior to me actually getting to the point where I said, okay, I'll go to treatment. I'll go to AA. I'll do whatever. I'm out of options
0: here. Yeah. Now, so were you experiencing alcohol and alcoholism related problems that you thought she would be able to help you with and that's yes. why you went to her for yes, four years nothing
1: but a, a, a deep spiritual malady and i mean it was external as well i mean i felt like i couldn't hold a job i couldn't mm-hmm. put a roof over my head i mm-hmm. you know couldn't have a relationship with a woman that i wanted i mean mm-hmm. these are the things and i remember going to her mm-hmm. saying hey if you fix these things for me, I'll be okay and I'll I'll handle the, the drinking and the drugging. <laughs>
0: yeah, so it's not about the drinks and the drugs, it's about help me fix myself emotionally and mentally.
1: Yes. How delusional and twisted I, I was and I couldn't, I, I couldn't see until I could see.
0: Well, at least she mentioned it to you and, and brought it up. I went to a psychologist for a number of years who never once confronted me on my drinking and drug use. Even when I would weave some of the behavior into my stories, he never once suggested that I might want to consider quitting or anything else. But like you, I was also lying. And, you know, when you've got an appointment once a week for an hour, you know, you, you can you can be okay for an hour once a week.
1: Well, I would smoke pot before I went to see this lady. Did you really? It was like a therapeutic type vacation. Like, take a load <laughs> off and relax and dump all of my problems on this woman while, yeah. because I can't do anything without a buzz at this point. But I'm, I'm so glad that uh-huh. She early on directed me towards AA. I mean, that's what saved my life. Because of that, that's why I'm here. I mean, there were some you know twists and turns in the road, but she planted the seed for me to come to Alcoholics Anonymous.
0: So, is this an outgrowth of childhood? What kind of home did you grow up in?
1: I grew up in a good home in East Texas, and my parents are are wonderful people. I, I heard from them today. I heard from my mom today. I talked to my dad mm-hmm. Friday, but. We have a great relationship now. Uh, it wasn't always that way in the midst of my alcoholism. Um, I, I feel like growing up, it was... I mean, we were close. My mom and dad and I lived next door to my my grandparents, my maternal grandparent. My granddad was a cattle rancher and a cotton farmer. I mean, we grew up in an agricultural type wow. of lifestyle. Uh-huh. My dad's parents, though, they were also cattle ranchers. They had a big cattle buying operation. And wow. So... Horses and cattle and farm stuff and pickup trucks. And, I mean, that's what I knew. Hunting and fishing. It was very rural. And it was was really cool because, like, me and my granddad who lived next door, he was like my best friend. And we would play cowboy all day long. It was cool. I felt like I was different in the sense that I knew other kids didn't get to live this way. I felt somewhat special but maybe not deserving. But I grew up very very self-absorbed and not really knowing any other way to be. I was, yeah. I was the only child up to a point. My brother was born when I was six. Before I was 10, I never really had a bad day. It was. It seemed like it was a pretty charmed life.
0: Yeah, it and, sounds and, almost idyllic. I yeah. mean, it always is interesting for me, out of all the interviews I've done, there are those interviews where people did have really pretty great childhoods and and have really nothing negative to report about their childhoods. And I've always wondered over the years, how the heck did those people get to be alcoholics? But I know there's an answer to that that you'll probably be getting to here in a little while.
1: Well, I'll tell you what happened. Um, Everything was great until I was 10 years old. My granddad, who I was close to, who Mm -hmm. was, you know, like my hero, and he was kind of like a John Wayne meets Jesus Christ. Oh my God. <laughs> type of character. And, and he taught me about the Bible and Christ. We were went to church, mm-hmm. the moral teaching that I grew up with. I learned a lot from him, but of course from my parents as well. He died of a heart attack suddenly. Oh no.
0: And it crushed me. I did
1: not know how to deal. At that point, I needed a drink. And I didn't take a drink until later on, but I needed one. I just remember I kind of curled up on the couch in a like catatonic type and depression not really knowing how to but it was just painful it was physical pain that was born out right. of emotional and spiritual pain
0: how did your folks cope with that did they try and help you i
1: think they did they knew something was wrong mm-hmm. and they offered to you know get me help get me counseling and i remember mm-hmm. right then and there you Nope, know, real men don't ask for help mm. it on their own and i can handle that as a 10 year old child and, When I discovered, I think there's complications within our family dynamic because I think, you know, my mom lost her father and she didn't really know how to cope as well. And so we just kind of, in a lot of ways, not not their fault. They're great people, but there was, it seems like that's where the dysfunction in the family really showed up. And I think when I started drinking at 14, my alcoholism kind of took off. Maybe not immediately at 14, but by the time I hit 16, I was drinking every day. And so I feel like my alcoholism definitely exasperated the friction within our home. And, of course, my parents had their own stuff to deal with.
0: That's such a tough thing for a kid to go through the death of not only a, a close family member, but a man who you looked up to with such reverence and who taught you so much. It almost sounds like the one teaching that you could have used was the one that perhaps you didn't get from him, and that is how to handle that kind of pain.
1: Yeah, that's true. And almost immediately, I blamed God because God had to be responsible for this. I mean, you know, I was taught that he was sovereign and nothing happens without his His will, and so I got angry and blamed him.
0: So at 10 years old, you you had nobody else to blame. Your
1: No, God was real. Yeah. I just he scared the hell out of me i don't know if this is what they were teaching or just what i heard mm-hmm. the filters i was looking at this through and i think it's probably a combination of both and there's a southern baptist church in east texas but oh, what i heard is if you mess up <laughs> you'll go to hell or these bad things god will kill your granddad i mean that's not what they taught me but that's kind of what i felt on the inside like i better be good or god's gonna punish me and then I, but i, I kind of grew out of that like i uh-huh. I had, it was a conversion experience at at church where there was an altar call and I felt like this was real between me and God, you know, accepting
0: mm-hmm.
1: Christ, you know, coming to Jesus. Like, it was real. But... Up to that point it was kind of like this is something you need to do so you don't go to hell. That's kind of what I felt like I was taught. And this felt like more genuine. This was like a genuine third step that we do here where it's like, I don't I don't have the answer, but I know God's real. Mm -hmm. And I feel like maybe it wasn't that he loves me, but he's calling me to something to do something good with my life, whatever it is that he has for me. Yeah, I get that. When I was fourteen, a group of my buddies showed up with a cooler full of beer it was uh-huh. actually schlitz malt liquor bull ice cold and we, i grew up in a dry county in east texas there there wasn't a way to you know buy booze at the store but huh. there was a bootlegger on the other side of the tracks that sold schlitz malt liquor bull and so somebody showed up at this camp out out, out uh, in the woods with yeah. a cooler full of that and they're like you know here you go. And there's uh, kind of like what Bill talks about in the book. Yeah, He suspected that he was being none too smart. And I kind of (laughs) thought, this probably isn't a good idea, but what came out of my mouth was, you know, hand that to me let me show you how to do this. Mm -hmm. And, And I was a part of, I had arrived. It tasted horrible, but I got a sense of ease and comfort immediately. I needed more. yeah. So I drank more. I puked and... Cried and fought my buddies, you know, and just made an ass out of myself the first time. And after I got through it, the next day, I remember thinking, "Okay, you know, I'll I'll try to drink like a man next time, or maybe maybe I need to pump the brakes, but I'll try to drink like a man next time. <laughs> I won't drink like a little immature kid, you know."
0: Did you black out the first time you drank? Yeah. Do you remember? You yeah. did.
1: Yeah. Was that a
0: pattern that repeated itself? Was blacking out a big part of your alcoholism no, over the years? Not
1: Always, Howard, mm-hmm. but yeah. a, a lot of the times. But it wasn't. It wasn't like every time I drank, I blacked out. But it it was something that occurred with with frequency over the years.
0: Now, once the drinking started, did you guys become a group of guys who hung out primarily to get drunk and and have fun, or was sure. there a crowd that you ran with?
1: Yeah. And it was a crowd that groups and whatnot, mm-hmm. but also on the weekend, those groups would kind of blend together at certain times. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you did have most kids drink. And then you have a certain group that were more, you know, stoners as well. Right. Pot smoking. and Yeah. Maybe when I was a junior in high school, I kind of gravitated more to that than drinking, although it was a combination thereof. But it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, I don't have to deal with the, hangovers and getting sick in my stomach and, you know, all that stuff. But it was yeah it was sort of a combination. I I feel like, Howard, I got to a point where it's like, you know, whatever's going to help me catch a buzz. And there wasn't always a supply of yeah. you know, pot or drugs. I wasn't doing any hard drugs at that time. I yeah. didn't know how to get any. And I that was kind of a line that I didn't really want to cross. You yeah. know, okay, drink some beer and some liquor and yeah. smoke some pot. And that's kind of all I really wanted to do. Now I'm sixteen years old. I'm drinking every day and it was fun. I was just like I yeah. had a sense of ease and comfort, you know, I could talk to girls, they were interested in me, you know, and it was just good old boy having fun, kinda of like Dukes of Hazard to an extent. You know, I'm not harming anybody. I'm just having fun. My motto was if you if you're not wasted, then the day is. What are you doing? You
0: know? <laughs> what a slogan to live by. So you're drinking every day, uh, were you pretty careful about the way you were drinking? Did you overshoot the mark a lot of times? A lot
1: of the time. I had a little job working at a local bank as a maintenance guy, doing mm-hmm. deliveries and mowing the yard. And I, mm-hmm. I had a, a little truck that my parents had got for me and some mm-hmm. spending money. And so wow. I pick up my buddy. And he had a fake ID that we would head 20 to 30 miles down the road to, to get booze <laughs> at five o'clock every day. And, you know go out to his his grandparents had a at a ranch and we'd like you know cook steaks and it was just kind of a party pad there wasn't a lot to do it wasn't like they're living in a city where there are many options for entertainment and spare time it was
0: yeah were you involved in any other kinds of activities uh at at school extracurricular sports and that kind of thing
1: I played golf. I like golf. And I can drink smoke pot and play golf. And that was kind of my thing. I
0: <laughs> yeah. And that's enjoyed. something you can do for a lifetime. <laughs>
1: exactly. And I did well past high school.
0: So that was high school for you. That was an interesting time in your life. What happens after high school
1: so, I barely graduated high school, by the way. I had to go to summer class to officially graduate and failed one class. One class. Now, what I discovered later on inventory is, you know, I blamed the school for failing my class, but... It was pointed out to me by my sponsor at the time that, you know, I skipped school to drink and smoke pot and then I, I failed and I want to blame them. And, yeah. I, you know, and I also discovered the teacher whose class I failed, she didn't fail me. I failed her class. Yeah. Uh, I was kind of at one point a bully to one of her children. Oh, boy. And I owe that guy in the men's. So I've tried to find him and I haven't been able to, to find him. But the huh. point is, it's kind of like what the book talks about. My problems were of my own making. In that frame of mind, it's, you know, I'm thinking, well, it's it's their fault. They did this to me, and that's not the case. For graduation, I, when our graduation party was we drove around the backwoods of East Texas and drank a case of beer. That was kind of a thing, Howard, like Sometimes, you know, it was a 12-pack. Sometimes it was a case. Sometimes it was intentional. I could, you know, I could put away some beer for a skinny little kid. I felt like I wasn't good enough, and I didn't measure up. I wasn't good at football. I wasn't good at basketball. I, was, I enjoyed golf, but I wasn't as accomplished as mm-hmm. I was. always less than that. I was never good enough. And I remember a you know, part of that decision was, I'll drink everybody under the table. It was something that I felt like I could take pride in. Now, I couldn't necessarily like accomplish that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were other people who could out drink me, but it was <laughs> sure. kind of like, I'm going to have fun getting obliterated so I don't have to feel was so, it
0: loneliness? Was it yeah. anxiety? All yeah, those. I think it's th-
1: loneliness, anxiety, probably depression, and not really knowing how to identify that because once again, real men don't ask for help in that family. Not their fault. It's just what they knew. So I don't want to sound like I'm blaming my parents, but it's you know there wasn't a way to like really discuss what was going on with me in a healthy way without a fear of some kind of retribution mm-hmm. or B. You know, I would be exposed, and the, the jig would be up. I would have to stop drinking, or I would be called to some form of accountability around that, and I would have to give up something that I loved.
0: When you were doing all this in high school, and then I guess after you got out, you just continued on, or how yeah, did that work?
1: I went to school at, at Texas Tech in Lubbock, and uh-huh. I had a, a good time out there. But the part of the reason that I went was they accepted me. Yeah. I, I couldn't get into Texas or A and M where all mm-hmm. my friends went. I wanted to get as far away from my parents as possible. And my parents were going to foot the bill for me to go to college and they were really pushing for me to go to college. Deep down inside I was so scared. What I would have liked to have done is say, I'm not ready for this. Let me get a job and try to, you know, make some money, get on my own and become self sufficient, or at least move in that direction and then I can somehow magically put things together and get my, you know, studies in order and academics in order and and do yeah. well in school. I just I knew deep down I wasn't ready for it. I barely graduated high school. Mm. I'm dealing with all of this shame. I just mm-hmm. but I'm faking it, right? I mean I don't know what else to do except try to put on a facade and fake it.
0: So you faked it into college?
1: Faked it into college. And there was an intensive study floor at this at the dorm that I was staying at, mm-hmm. in at Tech. And there was a sense of, hey, if I I just go here and associate with this group of people, uh-huh, then maybe I can you know not drink and, and drug or at least manage it. Yeah. And so my parents dropped me off and this is the the study group floor, and as soon as they leave, my neighbor next door, he comes in with a bag of pot, <laughs> a oh. big bowl. He's like, y'all, y'all want to go smoke this and, and then go eat? Yes, of course. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, the, study,
0: um, the study
1: floor. The study floor. Guess what? Yeah, yeah. The, the guys on the study floor, we're drinking and getting high, too. I guess there's another lesson that I learned. Wherever I go, there I am, and I tried some uh, geographical cures and Booze and dope always found me, even when I'm trying to be good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know? How would you sum up your college experience with regard to your drinking and drug use?
1: I would say, Howard, that's where it it escalated in the sense that that's where the it kind of ceased to be fun and started to become lonely. I mean, there mm-hmm. were some fun moments, mm-hmm. but that's where the loneliness really set in. And I feel mm. like in doing a lot of work with my sponsor and with other mm. men and reading the book, yeah, that, that loneliness that yeah. only an alcoholic can understand, that's where that started to really show up in my life. You know, smoking pot daily really took off in college. I didn't join a fraternity in Lubbock. Fraternities were a big thing, but I was kind of like the guy who knew some guys in the fraternity and could go to some of their parties. But I wasn't really interested in that. I was more kind of the, the lone wolf, independent, let me drink and get high by myself or with a small group of people.
0: Did you experience what kind of um, consequences did you experience with regard to drinking and, and uh, using marijuana? Did you ever get caught, or were there other things that went on?
1: You know, Howard really. There, there wasn't. There's, there weren't any legal consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I made it a point to try to not drink and drive. Like, yeah, uh, that was something that that didn't really happen for me. I tried to make it a point not to carry pot or other. Drugs on me, and yeah, yeah. or small amounts, something that I felt like I could stash if or ditch if I were to yeah be pulled over, so at that point, no, uh but there after that point, Howard, I guess you know what I'm just nineteen, and there are parts of my early twenties that I just really don't remember because that's when a lot of the drinking and drugging really took off and that's when a lot of the geographical cures showed up where i would leave mom and dad's trying to you know find whatever Mm -hmm, that i was mm -hmm. looking for to get on my feet and there would be some failure and i would come back and you know i would end up couch surfing or staying with friends so
0: this was back and forth from the time you were 19 until
1: about i got sober at 27 at 25, I think is when I really. It was kind of like that's where I was near the end. I think that's when I started seeing the therapist. Well, I started seeing the therapist lady at about 20. When I was 23, I think, mm-hmm. but it was probably, you know, around 25 where it was kind of like, I I really need help, and I knew this for a long time, mm-hmm. and, but it was kind of like, I'm I'm almost willing to get some kind of <laughs> help.
0: Yeah. Right. To, right. Uh,
1: to you know, straighten my life out. It was it, it. was at that point where I realized my only next two stops can be the penitentiary or death. Right, and that's those are the only. That's the only direction I can really go from here if I keep doing what I'm doing.
0: Where did you feel like you were leaning? Which way?
1: Oh, probably death. But I don't even know, Howard.
0: Yeah, I don't even know.
1: I don't yeah. I'm scared of both.
0: Yeah, but you were drinking all the time. Yeah. From the time you were, so you, you, you try and do these things, you're going back and forth to the, to the folks until, was there a, a, a point at which you stopped going back to them because of the drinking?
1: I felt like I was keeping that well hidden, and I'm yeah. sure that I wasn't. I got a job working for
0: uh-huh.
1: a family member, mm-hmm. my great aunt and uncle. They own Dairy Queen's. And it was kind of like, you know, Bl- Blaine's a little wayward and can't get his stuff together. <laughs> Let's see if we can help him out. And
0: oh, that's nice. Like,
1: yeah, I looked at, at them as like model citizens. They've mm-hmm. done well in the Dairy Queen franchise business. They sure. Lunch in Louisiana. They
0: uh-huh.
1: became very wealthy. And uh-huh. I thought maybe I can learn how to do what they do because I'm thinking if they can do it, certainly, <laughs> why can't I? And I worked in their office and it was making Minimum wage and what I learned, Howard, is don't work for family. <laughs> really, you know, uh, I'll tell you this, here's what's really cool. I got to make amends to both my great aunt and great uncle and i not sober. I remember wow. making amends to my uncle and just he say, Hey, look, I was not a good employee. You tried to help me and tried to get me a shot and I I would leave work to go drink. And I did. I mean it Yeah that's yeah. kinda It's kinda like that's where that's where alcoholism Honestly, it's where it really took off. Howard, alcoholism was there with me the whole time. I'm just looking back, remembering. Oh, here's a real symptom of alcoholism: yeah. hating what I'm doing throughout the day, and I've got to go get a drink at three o'clock.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a response to what's going on on a daily basis. Yes, and hey. it's what
1: was going on internally. It was. It right. wasn't uh, them. It was. I don't like me and my life in the way that I'm living yeah. and I need a drink but I got to make amends to my great uncle for that and he was just like hey glad you got straightened out you know and wow that's,
0: that's a good feeling yeah, so so you're doing these things the dairy queen deal doesn't work out yeah you started going to therapy when you were 23 I think it was like right
1: after that
0: what kind of outcomes were you getting from going for therapy
1: it wasn't really anything howard it was i, I think the lady Knew that I was an alcoholic, and she could not help me. And at one point, she even said, "You know, I told you what to do, right? Go to treatment and go to AA." Yeah, it's like we're wasting time. And
0: as long as you kept going to her, you didn't have to face the alcoholism. Yeah.
1: Shortly after the Dairy Queen deal, there was a, a friend that I knew from that time, mm-hmm. significantly older than me. He's my parents' age. Yeah, I've known him forever, uh-huh. but he. He had. He was a cutting horse trainer, hmm. and he and my dad rodeoed together a long time ago. They, mm-hmm. they were bull riders. My sure, was a bull rider. Wow. Yeah, and so figured I'll go see him. He'll try to. He'll help me out. You know, he's always trying to yeah. help people out who are kind of down on their luck. Uh huh. This was probably this was two thousand two thousand one. So uh-huh. I get sober in 'o three. Right. Right, so right around there. You're right. The, a, I'm about to you're get a sober. couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm About to get sober. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a a geographic cure that was really, um, I think good for the most part. I, I, I pulled up and I didn't really drink for, uh, there's like one month I remember on a Saturday, Mm -hmm. I think I, I drank a case of beer on two Saturdays out of that month, but I didn't drink any more like during the week or any other day. So I drank. You know, I had 28 days sober, two days drinking, and that was good for me, or at least I felt like it was. How many months did
0: you do that for?
1: Well, I mean, that was just that one month.
0: Oh, one I mean, month. Okay, was, sure. And
1: then I, I met a young lady who was somewhat, you know, wayward and took an interest in me, and mm-hmm. she ended up. Moving in with me, uh, and and she was having substance abuse issues as oh, well. It was no. like we're going to quit together. Uh
0: uh-huh.
1: um, And then she showed up with a bag of meth one night, methamphetamine, or right. was, and I remember the first time I did that, like I thought, wow, this stuff owns me. I need more. You know? Oh and man. Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of able to control and manage that for a while, and then she showed up with some stuff, and it was kind of like a a year of hell.
0: You guys after lived that, together for that year, lived
1: together for that year what
0: was the outcome of that? Oh,,
1: it was just you know, she actually went missing at one point, and I mean she ran away uh-huh and from you from me, and it was right at the time of like nine eleven I'm thinking cops didn't contact me but it was kind of like people are looking at (laughs) Blaine what's going on I have not seen her she just left mysteriously and I think she went to Houston I think she went I'd heard she was living on the street I think I you know I found out she was alive and she was okay and I can't remember if that was through her dad or aunt or whatever wow yeah but it was a real scary freaky time I mean I'm still you know drinking and doing my drugs and
0: Were you getting increasingly paranoid as a result of that? Yes. So this is shortly before you shortly before two thousand three that all this is. Yeah, shortly before two thousand
1: three. I got to make amends to her a few years back. She was three wow. years older. She was married with two kids in Corpus, and it was great. I mean, it was over the phone. It was, I don't want anything. I just realized that I've, I've harmed one of God's children. I want to make that right. And huh. it was cool. It was really cool. And It's like, okay, we wished each other the best, and that's done.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my big book podcasts, Check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Take us up to the point at which you, that the days before you got into AA.
1: I was living with my aunt and uncle at the time. They'd taken me in. I got a job selling cars at... And, you know, they're they're not drinkers. I wanted to be respectful of their home. You know, and but I couldn't pull it off. I had to have a drink or two or three every single day uh-huh. after work. But I would say the internal condition Howard just got to be too unbearable. You know, the book talks about the guy who, you know, had a few words with his boss and then left yeah. to, to go Find someone to buy a car. Well, my boss was an asshole one morning, and I had a few words with him, and I just left. I said, "Screw this! I'm out of here. I'm not going to work with you guys." And but it was just the anxiety just became too much to where I felt like maybe I was having a nervous breakdown, or, and I called the the mental health professional lady, and yeah. she basically just said, "Are you ready?" And I said, "Yes, I will go to I'll go to treatment." Wow. To AA. And there's a guy who was going to my parents' church, the church that I grew up in, that I uh-huh. had left and turned my back on when I was 16. Mm-hmm. This guy talked to my dad, and he said, you know, um, Jay wants to talk to you if, if you're willing to listen. Uh-huh. sure, because at that point I was—that was the surrender. Yeah, I'm, I'm beat. I'll do whatever. This was a guy that I looked at, and I thought, if I ever get as bad as this guy— <laughs> I'm surprised this guy's alive. And he was sober. He was two years sober. And he 12-stepped me over the phone. And, you know, he had some not really kind words. He, uh, he he basically just said, you're about to get punched in the mouth with some reality. Are you ready for it? And I said, yeah, I, I've got no other choice. Yeah, he's like, you're 27 years old. You got to grow the hell up. And yeah. And that helped me sort of get on my way to sobriety. Um, there's a A treatment center that is no longer around, but those people helped save my life. That's where he went. That's where he suggested that I go. And it was maybe two or three weeks before they had a Mm -hmm. bed. And so I white-knuckled it at my mom and dad's waiting for a bed to open up at this treatment.
0: Were you trying not to drink at that point? Try
1: not to drink. I want to say my last drink came around November 29th of Uh 2003. I found a roach of pot on December 7th, and I just couldn't (laughs) abstain, but that was was when I was done, and it was kind of like, I'm not catching a buzz. Drinking drugs, I wasn't catching a buzz anymore, and it was like, this is just done. There was no fun left
0: so you went to this treatment center
1: it was supposed to be a 30 day and they said well we understand you're really sick we need to keep you for 63 days (laughs) i don't i don't know why i don't know if maybe they just wanted to ring the insurance register or something i don't know what that was about i think maybe my parents paid for it um there wasn't any alcohol withdrawal i mean there Mm. could have been there was definitely some sort of psychological withdrawal nothing physical i didn't have to medication to detox.
0: Was that a uh, 12-step oriented program?
1: They had AA meetings there. That's where I I went to my first meeting. I don't know the rehab but they had AA there. The people from the outside brought meetings in. Yeah, that was cool. And like throughout the day there was like, there was activities. There was, you know, wreck and frisbee and rope climbing and... Lots of fun. Lots of fun. I mean, it it was kind of a good vacation. It was kind of like... yeah. I mean, what else am I going to do? I needed some structure and something to occupy my time. Otherwise, I'd just be getting high.
0: Yeah, that's always seemed kind of interesting to me, how people hit the end of their road and they're so beaten up and down on their luck and whatever else. And then treatment consists of going to this, like, resort.
1: Right, yes.
0: (laughs) And then after the resort, there's the handoff to AA in the community
1: dollars big book.
0: Right. So how would you judge the handoff between the treatment center you went to and AA? Was it kind of a smooth transition for you? Were you well enough indoctrinated into AA to know that once you got out, that's where you needed to be?
1: Yes. And here's how that went down. I hit my knees in my room one night, and maybe it was my second night that God, I will do whatever. Saw the steps on the wall. I yeah, you know, hadn't worked any steps, hadn't really, I think maybe I, I had a big book and read some of it, but didn't really understand, you know, the program of action, hadn't worked the steps with a sponsor, but I just mm-hmm. did my knees and said, God, I will do whatever it is that you ask me to do. And it's, it's probably going to suck and I, I probably won't like it, but I'll do it. And about a week later, some guys from this place showed up and i knew that was the answer to my prayer my initial reaction was like god really halfway house you know i was one <laughs>
0: yeah you know, yeah
1: job or uh-huh. know, specific clear-cut direction although that was specific clear-cut direction as soon as i got out of treatment i went because i really had no place else to go and it was kind of like for me it was a long hard tough road howard but it was kind of like i'm fine at 27 i'm finally growing up i'm doing some of the things that I should have done yeah. when I was younger. Yes, I need help, but I'm also working towards getting out of, out on my own and being self-sufficient and being a functioning member of society.
0: So how long did you spend in that aftercare program?
1: Four months. But I was indoctrinated into the meetings there, and they told me to work the steps, trust God, clean house, help others, help the new man get a job. That was what I was supposed to do. And... I want to say shortly thereafter, a guy in a van pulled up and took me to a meeting. Now, this was not uh-huh. a meeting; it's, it's called Jesus in the Steps by right. Bob, and he pointed me in the direction of this uh, other facility. It was in Fifth Ward, and I, uh-huh. I stayed there. They were affiliated with uh, a church which was in uh-huh. Montrose at the time, yeah. and they were helping drug addicts and alcoholics who didn't have right. any place to go. I went there. I stayed in Fifth Ward for about seven months, and then I went to the Montrose location. This is all like a real faith builder. It's kind of like, okay, God, you're really all that I have here. Yeah. I want to trust you to, to take care of me as I go through these less than ideal circumstances that that I created.
0: All of the work that you were doing in the program was coming through the program in the facilities that you were in or were you going to outside AA meetings at the time?
1: Most of the meetings were at the facilities, but I would go to outside meetings.
0: Once the gig in Fifth Ward was done, what did you do next?
1: I went to the church house in Montrose and they had like a, what they called, one the three quarter house, it was a seven eighths house. It was (laughs) kind of like you could have your own room, you paid rent. It's a sober community. But you can kind of come and go as you yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. But it was cost effective. And it was probably two years later before I got out on my own and got my own place.
0: Do you think you could have done all of this with just AA at the time? Or were these places that you went to live, these protected communities of other sober people, to what degree were they necessary to your longer-term sobriety? I think
1: they were fairly necessary. Yeah, I, mean, I was you know, ready to to go or stay as needed. You know, I just I surrendered. And I don't know, Howard, maybe I could have, maybe I stayed a little too long. I don't know. Yeah. The career that I have now, I've been at the same firm for 16 years, a financial services recruiter. And I got that because I met someone who was staying at this sober facility (laughs) in Montrose and said, hey, you need to go talk to, to this guy. And it's a it's a guy who's one of us in the program oh that's so cool yeah it it was great it's been the best move ever you know best thing ever you know this is a I'm a guy who cannot keep a job Mm -hmm. who couldn't keep two nickels to rub together right who couldn't keep a roof over my head I'm been gainfully employed at the same place for 16 years. I don't think... We didn't talk about my son. When I was at the sober community, you know, there was a young lady who came over from the women's facility. Right. And, uh-huh. You know, boy meets girl in rehab mm-hmm. campus. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that that didn't work out. But the, the point <laughs> is, is that th- because of God and Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm able to have a relationship with my son, and I'm able to have a relationship with his mom and be supportive of both of them. And that has been you know, early on since, you know, he's born in 05. But, you know, I've, I've been in his life since day one. and I've
0: Is it a joint custody type of arrangement? Yes.
1: It, well, she has primary custody. I get him all week. It's, I've heard
0: you talk a lot about him over the years, yeah. and it sounds like you, you are a really, really good dad to him.
1: Thank you. To Gift.
0: Somewhere along the way, you were having some challenges. Did he have some health challenges?
1: Yes. He was diagnosed with Crohn's about 10 years ago. You know, there's been... Doctors' medications and surgery, and mm-hmm. surgery really helped him. And, and recently I was diagnosed with Crohn's at 45. And wow.
0: So it's a genetic... Uh,
1: I, I'm thinking it has to be, wow. you know, I would think. Yeah.
0: Wow. So tell me about the last number of years with regard to AA and going to meetings and what your life has been like overall, how you've integrated meetings into your life.
1: They're a constant. They're, they're a must-have the foundation of my life is God and Alcoholics Anonymous. Spiritual success and spiritual recovery has to come before financial and family recovery. Yeah. I mean, that's something <laughs> that was drilled into me early on. And I realized that things good and bad happen in sobriety and yeah. go through challenges, but I'm, I'm grateful for the, the good times and the miraculous things. And I've just, I realized like during covid if everything good in my life goes away i've got god and alcoholics Anonymous, and those two things are constants for me and everything mm. else sort of flows out of that
0: talk to me about some of the struggles that you've gotten through
1: well i mean when aiden got sick i mean that was just a, a sense of helplessness and powerlessness to watch your child be in pain and struggle
0: I remember you bringing that to this meeting yeah. that we, you and I just came out of this evening yeah. you sharing about that back then
1: yeah it was a real faith builder it was a real surrender it was mm-hmm. my sponsor at the time you know I called him one day and he was just like you know hey pray and trust God and he, he wasn't he wasn't cold about it. He was like, there's yeah. your answer. And that gave me a sense of peace and comfort. We walked through that challenge.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's you know, there's a young lady that I love. I say young, we're the same age. Mm-hmm. But I you know, lived with her alcoholism. I'll let her tell her story. But yeah. I got to see the flip side of the coin around Al-Anon. And knowing that she's a great person, beautiful person inside and out, but was very, very sick and seeing her alcoholism and living with her alcoholism, knowing what's wrong with her, knowing why she's sick and why she's doing what she's doing. And there's not a damn thing that I can do about it. I can't rescue her or save her. That was very heartbreaking. And then just the day-to-day struggle of living with the alcoholic who is hiding their drinking and Howard, at that time, I just this all came from AA. Their program. Wow. I've, my current sponsor is someone who's had experience in Al Anon as well. I've gone to some Al Anon meetings. Yeah, yeah, then. yeah. I love that program. I'm not as active in that as I am AA.
0: So you were you were dealing with you were dealing with her largely through the working of your AA program. Correct. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel like that served you?
1: Oh, it was vital. Yeah. It was vital. I remember when she left and there was I mean it was it was messy and she didn't want to go but we came to the understanding that it was necessary for her too. I just remember laying on the floor and, and crying and wondering what do I do now because I have lost myself in her alcoholism I and mean, I called my sponsor and he said come to the Wood center we're having a, an AA function you know mm-hmm. get out of yourself go do something and and I was going to meetings during that yeah. Time period, but I wasn't as active as I am now. I kinda I I rested on my laurels. It was easy for she and I just to stay in and watch the Astros together is the year they want yeah, the yeah, And I remember I got a text from Michael Z letting us know about Swamp Bob and I thought, Oh my gosh, this could be me. I'm that guy with double digit sobriety who's not really doing what he needs to be. Deuling.
0: Yeah, that was tragic yeah, the he way was, he left because yeah. he was close to a lot of people. Yeah, you know his story just even by his nickname, it was always more about his pre-AA story than it was about his post-AA story, and he faced a lot of the same demons that we all do.
1: I remember thinking, like, he finally did it, or it finally got him. You yeah. know,
0: so that illuminated some areas of your own life that you needed to kind of redouble your efforts in AA.
1: Yes, it was kind of. A, a wake-up call around, you know, the, the ice is melting underneath my feet.
0: So how did you navigate through the this relationship of yours ending at that point?
1: It was difficult, but it was, there was a sense of just relief and freedom that I can sort of move on and try to heal. And I didn't immediately go out and jump into any kind of relationship. I wasn't, I didn't feel like that would be healthy. I felt like I had some healing that I needed. Mm-hmm. I guess shortly thereafter, this was in November and then mm-hmm. in March of 2019, I got word that she was in a car wreck and, mm-hmm. and man died. thought, well, you know, this is just something that unfortunately I kind of saw coming as a natural result, result of alcoholism. Yeah.
0: And that could happen for anybody. Yeah, exactly. Too, for sure. it,
1: exactly. It could have been me, but any one of us in that regard, we were able to later on that year, make amends to each other. We hmm. were emailing. I, I don't like to be the guy that blocks people, but at one point, while she was still drinking, I had to block her because I was getting sort of abusive type.
0: Messages oh, yeah. You
1: know, I don't have to put up with this. I, I love you, but I, I'm going to protect myself on this one. And so, at one point, she reached out to me, and we made amends to each other. And. I was like, you know, what? What do I need to do to make things right? And she was like, Will you unblock me? Because I, I didn't know if I was going to see her again or talk to her again. I didn't know how I felt about any of that stuff. But we started talking, and our relationship improved. And it was, you know, long distance and and over the phone. But
0: It is according to the steps, though, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it the was. very fact that you would both make amends. Yeah. Is pretty amazing. That's right.
1: Because it wasn't like, oh, she was this horrible person and i'm lily white his snow hands are clean now oh, i had some things i needed to make amends for it too so is it her,
0: safe you know, to things. say that your respective aa programs have healed this relationship yes wow yes that's a terrific and gift
1: it is it is and we're still doing the long distance thing because she you know has some things that she needs to do in her yeah. life like we both in, in the amends process. We both realized, hey, we tried to force this relationship to go yeah. our way, and it didn't work out. We, if, if this is going to continue, we must be on better footing. She grew up in North Texas. For a period of time, she moved away in second grade. Uh-huh. My mom actually worked for her dad and grandfather at a local savings and loan.
0: So here you guys are all yeah. these years later. It sounds to me like you've— you've experienced some terrific challenges during your sobriety and you got through them. Sounds like you remained in the center. The way you've talked about your sponsors and how the work that you've done in the program has kept you from being pulled off of the center to a large degree. Yeah. Um, I know the biggest challenge for a lot of people over the last couple, three years has been the COVID and Zoom meetings, but I used to see you on so many Zoom meetings that I knew for sure that you were going to meetings all the time because I was seeing you in the same Zoom meetings. You and I go to several of the same meetings a week and that's to me that's a real blessing and it's allowed me to get to know you a lot better than I know a lot of other men. But to hear you what you've gone through and gone to the other side of it, that must make you a pretty good sponsor.
1: So Let's talk about sponsorship. You mentioned that And you've heard me say that I've had multiple sponsors. I want to say that I've never fired a sponsor and they've never fired me. The first sponsor I got at aftercare Mm -hmm. was a guy that, you know, I looked at the steps on the wall and I kind of had this thing about, you know, I, I knew some of the things that were on my inventory that I was so scared to talk about. Oh, yeah. I didn't really want to talk. I'm yeah. scared of what I'll find. 12 and 12 <laughs> talks about that just being a boogeyman. Yeah. I'm just scared. I found, the way I found a sponsor, I don't recommend this for anyone, but they didn't tell me how to find a sponsor. It was just, I judged his outsides by my insides. Oh, I looked yeah. At him and I thought, you know what, I don't care what this guy thinks about me because I had this thing, <laughs> you know, scared <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. was going to be judged. On, uh, yeah, yeah. The fifth step. And me and that guy never opened the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and it was so weird. I mean, we did the treatment center format, we did six and seven out of the twelve and twelve. Probably two years sober, two and a half years sober, I I was ready to drink or, you know, check out in some way. And I had not recovered from alcoholism. I'm going to meetings and I'm living in these sober houses and I'm not and maybe that maybe if I'd found the solution, maybe I could have become more self sufficient early on, Howard, I don't know. I, maybe that happened because I needed to see the difference between good sponsorship and bad sponsorship, and it just sort of happened that way. I ran into a guy who is now my earthly employer. He had just, you know, gotten out of treatment. He'd been in AA. He had some Sprite. He had a Mm -hmm, mm slip. He was on fire and sponsored people, and, you know, I'm working for him, and he said, hey, man, if you if you want to do the work out of the Big Book, I'll be glad to help you. And and I got free in that fourth and fifth step uh, to make some real amends this time. And, wow. And it was cool. Now, given the fact that he's my employer he's you know the employer and being a sponsor that was a difficult relationship so i started working with his sponsor at the time
0: okay so that's a line that's very very difficult yes. to to cross of course right yeah. right the, those kind of bound, healthy boundaries i know when i was new in sobriety my sponsor who's got about a year more sobriety than i do but he was only had maybe three years i had two years he had a really neat business going i really wanted to do it with him we were trying to find a way to make it work but at the end of the day, the relationship that we had as sponsor-sponsee and emerging fri- an emerging friendship that lasts to this day, it just wasn't the right thing to do from the program standpoint. I could have had one or the other, but not both. So I chose the, to have him as my sponsor.
1: And I think ours just sort of, orga- we didn't ever have the conversation. It just sort of organically happened. Yeah, that's and cool. You know, he took me through the work and it was kind of like, okay, now... Not that you're on your own or the rest is up to you, but it was, he had recovered. He works a good AA program. I've seen the the fruit and the results in his life. And and so I started working with his sponsor. And his sponsor, you know, again, same yeah. type of thing. Had, you know, business, wife, kids, you know. Had good. what he wanted. Yeah, exactly. He was, you know, happy, joyous, and free until he wasn't. And that guy smoked crack again and lost everything. mm so I needed a new sponsor, and that's where mm-hmm. Randy Heyman, I started working yeah. with him, and I had the chance to, he passed away from cancer a couple of years ago. It was right before COVID. I hadn't talked to him in, in five years at one point. I, I'd gotten another sponsor. I've gotten Ron T. We've been working together for eight or nine years. But Randy called me out of nowhere. And as he's dying of cancer, he said, hey, I'm I'm dying of cancer. Will you take me to the meeting? And uh, it was an honor and a privilege. And I did that every Thursday for, I guess, maybe a year or however long it was before he passed away. I got to spend time with joy and a a privilege and a real gift because I didn't necessarily know if I was going to see him again either. You know, it just seems like sometimes people come and go out of our lives for, you know, reason, season, or a lifetime. But most of the people who've been in my life are still part of my life. Yeah. I'm grateful for that.
0: You sound grateful. And I, I see it. I see it in the working that I see you doing with other people in the program at meetings. You're, you've always got your hand extended. I think that's very cool. So you're sponsoring other men right now. Yes. I tend to sponsor like I was sponsored. Do you find yourself doing the same? I do. Yeah. I do. It's kind of cool because when you're sponsoring somebody and you don't know what to do next, because you're sponsoring like your sponsor sponsors, there's always a quick connection. There were times at which I had to call Mike sure. and say, now, how do I deal with this? This is something I haven't dealt with. And if he had not dealt with it, he'd call his sponsor. So when they say, make sure you get a sponsor who's got a good sponsor.
1: Yep. Here's a real cool story. Yeah. So, this was, I guess last year, mom and dad asked me to go with them to Fort Worth on Memorial Day. My brother and his wife. Yeah. And so they're going to Fort Worth for Memorial Day, a little getaway, and uh-huh. I I go with them cuz I want to spend time with them, but you know, they're there are two couples and Yeah. You know, babies in prison and I'm not real, <laughs> you know, I'm just kind of like, oh, you yeah. know, be here. I'm kind of the Odd man out. I'm an outsider in my own family. That's how I felt. I get it. And so we go and we stay in Weatherford. My dad's from Weatherford. They have family reunions and things up there. And about that time I needed I need an AA meeting. I want to go to an AA <laughs> meeting, right? So I go to the AA meeting in Weatherford and it's a small meeting, good group. There's a new guy there. He's, you know, just trying to get sober. Uh-huh. Running from the law, running from trying to get his wife and kid back—all that stuff—and so uh-huh. I just I talk to him, and the next night I go back, and that guy's still there, and I'm waiting in line the coffee bar, and there's this old gruff guy. He's a, he's a truck driver, and he's you know just like lives in Austin, sure. and he's just on the road, stops in for, him. and so I'm like I'm visiting from Houston. Oh, I used to live in Houston. I used to go to the club, and oh really? Okay, and we started yeah, talking. Yeah. And we put some things together about, you know, who my sponsor is. And I told him, you know, it's Ron T. And he goes, well, I'm your grand sponsor. My name is Jay. And that was so cool. I had to go to Weatherford, Texas to meet my grand sponsor. Jay just celebrated 38 years.
0: That is so cool. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's a great story. All of the things you've been talking about during this interview, I think, have enriched my understanding of you as a man and as a sober man. I know that the things that you've talked about, over the last hour or so. Every example you've used, I think others can look at as for their own issues and problems. Uh, The fact that you've stayed sober 19 years in and of itself is an amazing accomplishment. I guess I'm kind of privileged and blessed in a way because I get to see you and we get to go to meetings together. But even if you and I were sitting down for the first time and hadn't really known each other, I still get from your story the essentials that are so important in AA if we're gonna enrich our lives and stay sober. The final thing I wanted to ask you was, let's say you ran into a guy in his early 20s who was struggling exactly the way you were struggling. What would you say to him about what he should do with his life?
1: I would tell him a bit of my story and I would let him know that I'm an alcoholic who has recovered because of what God and Alcoholics Anonymous have done in my life. be happy to help you if you care to, to take the action. Why don't won't you follow me to a that meeting?
0: Hmm. <laughs> That's the right answer yeah. <laughs> right there. That's all I, I, I That's know beautiful. That's oh, beautiful. Well, I guess,
1: okay, so maybe that kind of yeah. unlocks something in it. I'm going to... Came into Alcoholics Anonymous sooner. I don't think I could have gone back and stopped my alcoholism, whether my granddad died or whether these other tragic things happened or not. But I would have gotten in here sooner. But I just, I fought. I fought and I, went, I fought, and I wasn't ready and I was scared. Well, and it took what it took. And, and I think it takes what it takes for all of us.
0: Yeah, fortunately we've got the opportunity to see men who come in at all various stages and ages, and it's really kind of cool to do that. Uh I think you probably came in exactly on the day that you needed to, just like I did, and I think that's about a decision that was made for us by our higher power.
1: It wouldn't have happened any other way.
0: Yeah, I think so. Well, you're you're a really wonderful man. I've really enjoyed doing this. I love you, and you're you're a, you're a, a shining example of what good sobriety can look like.
1: Well, you are as well. The fact that you stand by the door and greet people at every meeting is something that's never been lost on me. And I've heard other men say that I look forward to going to the meeting because Howard is such a, a great guy, and he's always warm and receptive and welcoming.
0: Well, oh, thank you. That's a, It's a joyous experience for me on an ongoing basis. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Blaine H., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to many more episodes of this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.